Anthony Hansen hosting the sixth episode of the 2019 University of Minnesota IPM podcast series. Today we have George Heimpold with people in his lab, Jonathan Dregney and Carl Steinlein. So George, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, give a little background on who you are, and then also the other folks in your lab here? Thank you very much, Anthony, for hosting this and for having us here to talk about the work that we're doing in our lab. Um, my name is George Heinpel, and I'm on the um, entomology faculty here at the U. My sort of role here is to work on um, biocontrol of various insect pests. And I have a couple of people here with me, as you mentioned. Carl Stenoyen, who is a postdoc here at the U, got his um, PhD here a couple of years ago, is here with us. Um, he's been doing some great work. And Jonathan Dragney. It's been sort of my right-hand man for the last eight or ten years on the project that we're going to talk about here and others as well. So you mentioned uh, biocontrol. So what is biological control compared to what we often know about using insecticides? That's one part of IPM, but that's only one branch. Biological control is another pretty important one, right? Yeah, so um, biocontrol or bi biological control is basically using the good bugs to fight the bad bugs. And it could be bad bugs, or it could be weeds. But um, as we know, um, nature is very diverse, and there are a lot of inter interactions in nature. And some of those happen to be um, certain animals, in this case insects, that naturally feed on pests or, you know, invasive species. And so um, the discipline of um, bi biocontrol is one where we try to understand these interactions and try to harness beneficial insects to control pests. So there's certain groups of insects, rather, that can be beneficial. You can have some that I was just eat the insects outright. I know there are some others, parasitoids, called yeah. that are kind of unique in that sense. Right. So, so we typically would classify um, biocontrol agents into predatory insects and parasitic insects. And the predatory insects are, like you say, they just eat other insects. They could include things like lady beetles. But then there are parasitic insects, which include the parasitic wasps or parasitoids. And these are fascinating creatures. What they do is that they lay their eggs within or on other insects, and those eggs hatch, turn into larvae, which feed on that host, which is then the pest, um, killing it in the process. Parasitic wasps are a huge groups, so there are thousands and thousands of species. Almost all insect species have multiple species of parasitic wasps that attack them. So there's ample opportunity for us to find and study these parasitic wasps and um, to figure out how well they might be able to control our pests. So your lab's worked a lot on soybean and parasitic wasps within that group, as well as some other crops too. But uh, this new parasitoid, Aphelinus certus, has kind of hit the news a little bit in the last few years. Yeah. Um, what's been happening with that in soybean? Yeah, so um, going back a little bit, one thing that we found with soybean aphid was that when it um, invaded from Asia back in the year 2000, it really didn't bring with it any of those natural enemies that control it back in China. And the main natural enemies that control it in China are these parasitic wasps. So there was sort of a whole effort put into trying to find those and to try to bring 
over ones that would be ecologically safe to re release. And that's a whole story in itself. This species that you're mentioning, Aphelina certus, is also from Asia, so it also co-evolved with soybean aphid, but it came over by itself. We didn't bring it. Um, it just came over. We're not sure how. And it was first found in Minnesota in 2011 by our lab group. I think Jonathan was there on that day. And it's now, eight years later, one of the dominant natural enemies of soybean aphid, one of the species that's doing the best job in keeping numbers of soybean aphid far below what they would otherwise be. Do you know any numbers you might find in the field? So, say for instance, I'm out there, how do I know this parasitoid is out there? Oh, yeah. And then how much of a reduction might you see in soybean aphid too, uh -huh. because of that? Well, it actually is pretty easy to see in the field, even though they're tiny little wasps. You know, I should, I should maybe emphasize that we call them wasps or parasitic wasps, but they're nothing like a yellow jacket wasp. They're really tiny. They're literally about the size of a printed period on a page. So they're really tiny. They pose no risk to humans or to animals other than aphids. But even though they're tiny, we can see them in the field pretty easily because when they sting an aphid, as they're killing it, they turn that aphid black. And what you see on your soybean leaf is rather than a plump green aphid, you see a little black, shiny, bullet-shaped thing that we call a parasitoid mummy. So if you're a farmer or if you are um, a pest control specialist looking at soy leaves, you can see these little black mummies, and then you'll know that you have this little wasp that's um, attacking and killing aphids. And as far as your question in terms of what kind of benefit that they're providing, from the work that we've done over the last years, we've found that they're able to reduce the population of aphids below the economic threshold in something like 10% of fields. So uh, what that means is that if farmers are using the 250 aphid per plant threshold, then there will be a 10% reduction in spraying statewide. Is the parasitoid widespread enough, too, where you might have a situation where a grower has to spray, but is it maybe slowing it down where maybe... It may not be until later in the year or other areas, maybe further down south, where you maybe only have to spray once instead of twice. Um, we have found it throughout the soybean growing area in the state. Actually, Jonathan is the one that did some of that. So, But yes, uh, we have found it um, through, throughout the state. And we also find it from early in the season throughout the whole season. So I do think it makes sense that it would um, delay the timing of the soybean aphid outbreak. So it could certainly push the outbreaks back into that sort of August time frame when some growers might not even need to spray at all. And it could certainly also sort of slow the spread as soybean aphids are moving through not only the state, but the whole soybean growing area. Did you want to mention something about your sampling, John? Right. Well, I can report the sampling for this summer. We've had in Minnesota and throughout the 12-state north-central region from Ohio to North Dakota and down to Missouri, very low aphid numbers generally. 
However, in eastern Minnesota, central eastern Minnesota, we did find high aphid numbers, which is kind of interesting. But we've been doing a survey of many counties in Minnesota and across the north central region. And while we found very low aphid numbers, we do generally find aphelinus even at very low populations. And so this parasitoid wasp, we do find in low aphid numbers. So the thought is that it is very closely following, tracking the aphid to the fields in the springtime. One of the challenges that we have is understanding and trying to figure out what sort of management techniques might improve the effectiveness of this biocontrol agent. So how many years have you been finding the wasps out in the fields? Has it been you know, just slowly building up, or did you suddenly find it widespread even multiple years ago, or is it pretty recent that we've really started seeing these high numbers? When I started working with the lab in 2008, we were still in the process of doing the host range testing. So these parasitoid wasps, which we brought from Asia, we brought into a quarantine lab and were very cautious in handling them for many years. So that was my job was to handle those colonies and do some of those tests in quarantine here. We, in the year 2012, I believe it was, we had a major infestation of Aphelina certus, this parasitoid which arrived on its own to North America. So from that point on, we've been finding it basically everywhere that you find soybean aphid. It did take a while to get to southeastern Minnesota, which was kind of an interesting pocket. But uh, northwestern Minnesota has been, North Dakota as well, have been sort of central areas where we first find the Aphelina certus in the spring and where we find the largest numbers. Minnesota is sort of the center of, of this question. So, Jonathan, you mentioned how we're finding the parasitoids with the aphids pretty early on in the season. How does that seasonality affect in terms of whether a parasitoid will work well with a given species? George has mentioned we also have Carl here as well, who's worked on overwintering. That seems like an area where can these aphids survive the winter well, and are other areas related to that? Yeah, so George mentioned this being a thorny question, and um, I would agree, potentially even a buckthorny question. <laughs> uh, this overwintering potential is pretty important because when you're importing an organism or if it shows up on its own, it's only going to establish and be successful if the environmental conditions are appropriate to uh, that from which it came. So in some cases, we've seen biological control agents fail because of their inability to overwinter in the new habitat, perhaps because they weren't adapted to that type of winter environment in the first place, or because time spent in a laboratory while testing them resulted in evolutionary changes that led to them losing the ability to properly spend the winter. So we know that overwintering is important, and when we're thinking about this parasitic wasp, Aphelinus certus, some of the main questions are, where is it overwintering, and to what extent is it successful? On the where front, we know that soybean aphid has a primary host or an overwintering host, which is buckthorn, another favorite invasive species of people in Minnesota and the upper Midwest. So the question is, are aphelinus certus spending the winter in soybean fields after harvest, just being laid down on the surface of the field and spending the winter there, or are they following these aphids into buckthorn patches, continuing to parasitize them there while the aphids go through another generation or two, and then coming back from the buckthorn to find the soybean aphids in the soy again in the springtime after planting. 
On top of that type of where question, there's also that microhabitat question. So we've done some experiments where we place these mummies out in the field. They're ready for winter. And then we either place them on the surface of the field or uh, on, on the ground in buckthorn plots or on the twigs of buckthorn plots. And then we come back in the spring, collect these mummies, and see how well they survive in these different microhabitats, as we call them. And it turns out that a lot of insects and other animals spend the winter underneath the snow. The snow really acts as a blanket, insulating any organisms underneath the snow near the ground at much more stable and oftentimes warmer temperatures in the air. And so this seems like an important consideration when thinking about where these insects might spend the winter. Are they capable of surviving the harsh, fluctuating cold temperatures that would happen if they stay up on the buckthorn twigs? Or are they landing on the surface of fields or in the woods and then being blanketed by snow and being protected that way? So you mentioned how there might be some mismatch where certain insects may not be able to survive winters. So this isn't the first parasitoid for soybean aphid that's been considered here in Minnesota, is it? Yes. So, um, Anthony, I think you're alluding to a few species that uh, we brought in from Asia into our quarantine lab and did a bunch of studies on those, which were basically aimed at trying to determine um, how specialized these parasitic wasps are. So let me just talk a little bit about the fascinating sort of life cycle of these insects. What they do is that they they have a specialized egg-laying organ, an ov- ovipositor, and they sting the aphid and lay an egg into the body of that aphid. And then that egg sits there for a day or two, and then it hatches, and then you have the larva that's kind of swimming around uh, within the aphid blood, or as we call it, the hemolymph. And so it goes through this larval stage, takes a few days, and then it goes through the pupal stage. As I said, it turns um, the aphid into the sort of leathery husk that we call a mummy. And then after about another week, it pops out as, you know, an adult wasp and is ready to start the cycle again once it mates. So the question is, for a given biocontrol agent, when we bring it into quarantine and try to determine whether it would be ecologically safe to release it, can it parasitize um, a lot of different species of aphids or other insects or just the soybean aphid and maybe, maybe a few more? And so that's what we spent years doing with um, a total of about 20 different species of parasitic wasps. And we actually found that most of them were able to attack a lot of different aphid species, um, which maybe to some people doesn't sound bad if it attacks other aphid species, but we have to realize that there are also native aphid species here that live in natural habitats. And we actually don't want these parasitic wasps to sort of infiltrate native ecosystems and have possibly unforeseen ecological effects there. Also, even if we didn't care about that, the federal government would not let us uh, release a species of parasitic wasp that attacks many aphid species. Anyway... So we did these studies within our quarantine lab, and in case your listeners don't know, uh, we have at um, the University of Minnesota one of the very few such quarantine labs in the country, so it really gives us the opportunity to do these studies in depth. 
after all of that work, we came up with there, there, there were three species of wasps which showed high level of specificity, meaning that they should be ecologically safe to release. One of them, the name was um, Binodoxus communis, and we had, we ended up getting a permit to release that one back in um, 2007. And then another one was Aphelinus glycinus, and then a third one was Aphelinus rhamni. So uh, we have a permit to release these three species, and we have tried to release two of them, and they did not establish. And so that that brings up a lot of questions. Um, some of those questions Carl has already mentioned, um, but why did they not establish? Um, I'll tell you one reason that was not that that did not explain it, and that's the effort because we. We released tens of thousands of these at various sites, um, actually more like hundreds of thousands. So, so the effort was there, but they did not establish. Um, one of the theories for why they didn't has to do with this overwintering piece that Carl was just talking about. And, um, it is certainly true that when you're holding an insect under lab conditions for many years, Things can happen. Um, um, the evolution of traits that favor living in the lab, which is sort of a super cushy environment where you don't have a cold period, you don't really have to search for hosts. There's a lot of things that can change when you put an insect into a lab setting for many generations. So there could have been basically the genetic erosion of some of these important traits, like, you know, the ability to overwinter, you know, the ability to find hosts well, you know, the ability to fly well. There's a lot of those things that could have um, eroded in the lab. And this is unfortunately um, a trade-off of sort of modern biocontrol. So modern biocontrol is very safe. So as I mentioned, we're very focused on not releasing something that's going to cause either ecological harm or economic harm or any kind of harm, because that's that's what we've learned over the years is something that we really have to guard against. So we're doing great on that front, and we need to do that. But it does come at a cost, and that cost can be that you need to keep these insects in culture for many years. In doing that, you might get the genetic erosion of important traits. So I think this is maybe going beyond the question that you have, but but I think a, a sort of um, frontier in the science of biological control is how do we deal with this? And there are ver- there are various methods that can be used to overcome this. Um, but that's that's sort of something that's that's that that the that the biocontrol com- community is grappling with now. To, to make a long story short, um, we have released two species, and they fail to establish. Uh, th- those are both released, basically, one was before Aphelinosaurus, one was just as Aphelinosaurus was starting to come into play. The third species, we could still release it. We, we've been doing overwintering studies uh, on it, and it seems to not be able to overwinter as well as the others. And also, we have... Aphelinosertis now, so it's not as clear that an additional species like that would really help a lot. Um, but anyway, that one is still in play. 
So a lot of your lab's work has been based in soybean, but what other crops typically benefit from biological control in uh-huh. Minnesota? Um, as far as the crops that benefit from biocontrol in Minnesota, I would say I would probably talk about um, alfalfa first. And there are two major pests of, of um, alfalfa that have been brought under biocontrol. And the first is the is the um, alfalfa weevil, which I guess it's kind of rearing its head again now. It was a really bad pest going back to the 70s. And in the 1980s, you started to have people bringing in various species of parasitic wasps. There were at least three species, three major species that were brought in. And they, you know, one of them was especially important, brought that pest under complete biocontrol to the extent where, you know, a lot of growers uh, from the 80s and on through the 90s and the early 2000s didn't really ever see alfalfa weevil. I think, as we were mentioning off mic earlier, um, there is sort of the specter of the um, re-emergence of that pest, so that will be interesting to study. But um, there's also another pest of, um, of an alfalfa that was brought under biocontrol, and that's the um, alfalfa blotch leaf miner. And it may be that some of your listeners might not even know this pest. You know, it's the same kind of thing where two parasitic wasp species were brought in to control this. This was in the late 1990s and brought it under complete biocontrol too. So, you know, the alfalfa blotch leaf liner and um, the alfalfa weevil were two pests that at a certain point were causing a lot of damage, causing farmers to have to spray. For the alfalfa weevil, there were decades of no problem at all, so saving a lot of need to spray, and it's the same for the blotch leaf leaf liner. So for just kind of a wrap-up question now, we talk about parasitoids a lot, but also predators, but how do they fit into integrated pest management in general? So biocontrol is essentially kind of a free pest control in a way. We have our other tactics too, and the insecticides come up a lot, so how do those interplay, yeah. whether things to watch out for or when it can be beneficial? We talked a little bit about how we can delay insecticide treatments if need be, but what's the other end on how the other tactics affect these biological control agents? Well, um, I think that's a great question, Anthony, and um, different people talk about IPM in different ways, but but I think of it as sort of a three-legged stool, (laughs) and one of those legs is pesticide use, certainly, and another leg is um, host host plant resistance. And a third leg is bio, biocontrol. And they all affect each other in interesting ways. So you mentioned the effect of biocontrol on, um, on um, insecticide use. Certainly biocontrol can lead to lessened insecticide use. But in order for that to happen, it's really good to have a threshold um, that is used by farmers so that they don't just spray early in the season or on a schedule. If you have a threshold, then it allows biocontrol um, to lead to less spraying in an organized way. By the same token, insecticides have an influence on biocontrol, and that influence is to disrupt it. <laughs> and so, so you know, it's important to know, and it makes a lot of sense, that you can get better biocontrol by spraying less or by spraying only in certain areas. So that's another way that they interact. These things also interact with host plant resistance. 
And often, host plant resistance and biocontrol can kind of work together as a team. And we've actually done work on that for the soybean aphid system and found that to be the case because often host plant resistance can bring the pest levels down to a level at which biocontrol can further knock them back. And typically, host plant resistance doesn't have a negative effect on the biocontrol agents in the same way that pesticide use does. So I think we have to recognize that biocontrol is an important part of the IPM trifecta, and we have to understand how it interacts with those other legs of um, the IPM stool. It's really an important part of um, how our pests are controlled naturally. Well, thank you, Dr. Heimpel and the rest of your lab for stopping in today. We'll meet up with everyone else most likely next year. This will probably be our last episode for this year of the IPM podcast series. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.